As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman, it is Monday morning. We've just learned the playoff teams and the bowl lineup uh, on Sunday. Now Bruce, who is never home, <laughs> is in New York for the various uh, functions and festivities there this week. A lot of the coaching community convenes in uh, New York this week and ADs as well. I'm back home uh, after spending most of the weekend in L.A. And Bruce, having spent weeks and weeks analyzing and slicing and dicing what the committee was going to do, they basically held serve, you know, over a weekend where Alabama won, Clemson won, um, Washington beat Colorado soundly in the Pac-12 championship, and Penn State beat Wisconsin in a very dramatic Big Ten title game. We have the four teams that we had last week. You and I debated quite a bit about Ohio State, Penn State, Washington last week. Now that it is official, what are your thoughts? You know, it's what we expected it to be. I, I'm glad we got two competitive games on Saturday night. I thought that that spiced it up. But, you know, again, I, I love the Penn State story this year. You know, they they won the toughest division in college football this season. They won the conference. I think they impressed a lot of people the way they came back again. Uh, you know, they also had a pretty good non-conference schedule. But ultimately, you know, I still think – Ohio State's the better team. I know what happened head-to-head, but Ohio State only has one loss. And to me, the Ohio State-Penn State dynamic is really the only thing left to discuss. I could hear people saying, well, Washington's non-conference schedule was, was, was bad. And they did schedule, you know, Rutgers is a, is a power five team. It's a bad one, but, you know, who knew they'd be this bad? And they, they, only, won, they only lost one game. What's weird to me about, and you were at this game on Friday night, Washington wins by like 30 points, yet it was like a very underwhelming performance, I think, because Jake Browning, who was on my Heisman top five going in there, looked so mediocre in doing it. You agree? Yeah, it was. uh, I I wouldn't say Washington as a whole was unimpressive, but Browning had a a very disappointing game. If not for that crazy play where he was trying to throw it out of bounds and John Ross caught it one handed, uh, you know, there would have been not much at all to talk about. They did run the ball down Colorado's throat. And then what really made the game so weird was that Sefa Lufau gets hurt and misses the rest of the first half. 
And at that point, it's still a competitive game. He comes back to start the second half. Mike McIntyre claimed afterward, yep, he was good to go with the ankle injury. And proceeds to throw not one, not two, but three ducks right at Washington. And and one was returned for a pick six and Taylor Rapp and another set up short field. And that was that. So I would love to say, oh, well, was that dominant Washington defense? But it was more a, a hobbled quarterback throwing it up for grabs. Hey, end of day, Washington, who's been so mediocre for so long, 12-1 and Pac-12 champ. Uh, I feel they belong in there. I feel they're one of the four best. I don't think I would say as impressive as Penn State has been down the stretch that, you know, forget all the numbers, just just subjectively, I think Washington's the better team. You can say pull it however you want to pull it, and I think, you know, one losses versus two loss. I mean, to me, you can – I think the committee will give you some margin for error and – you know, you have a little bit of a mulligan factor, but the second loss, you know, if they had beaten Pitt, uh, I don't think it would have mattered if they still lost to Pitt and then lost by 14 instead of, you know, 35 or 40 points to Michigan. I was a little bit surprised, uh, frankly, in the end that because uh, I think in listening to Kirby Hokut's teleconference, it was pretty clear cut for them. They definitely spent more time agonizing over Penn State versus Washington. And that was almost entirely because they were bothered by Washington's non-conference schedule. Uh, than they were Penn State, Ohio State. I get it. I understand there's a, there's consternation about, well, they, they beat them on the field. They won the division. Uh, but I don't think it was particularly vexing for the committee that, I mean, because you look at it and you say through the BCS, through through basically all of college football history, people just kind of assumed you were going to pick them in order of losses, right? The, one lo- the undefeated before the one loss, the one loss before the two loss. I did think that the committee, that it would be different. A little bit, and it was the first year with Florida State. But for at the end of the day, for a two loss to Trump, a one loss, it's got to be you know a pretty clear cut case. And it seemed clear from Hokut's comments that they could not get over the thirty nine point loss to Michigan. You know, he just kept referring to it as non competitive. Then the loss to Pitt—that's not a terrible loss. They ended up ranked, I believe, in the end. But you know, when you think about, especially in particular with Penn State versus Washington. Um, both of their losses were worse losses than Washington's one loss at USC. So I think they actually had it pretty easy again in the end. Most of all, I get why people feel frustrated about what seems like a moving target with the committee, right? Two years ago, all you heard about was conference championships. This year, conference championships are just kind of a tiebreaker. You know, two years ago, there was so much about Baylor, TCU, head-to-head. Eventually, they trumped them. This year, I mean, they could not have emphasized head-to-head any less, as evidenced by the fact that Florida State finished ahead of Louisville, who they lost to 63-20. And on the conference call, Hokut said, we think, you know, based on how the teams finished the season, that at this point, uh, Florida State's a better team than Louisville. And I don't think he's wrong. I don't think just because it was 63-20 to in September, that means if they play again, that Louisville crushes them again. So it's an acknowledgement that college football is a full season and that one game— can't override all 12 or 13. Yeah, and as you said, it is a moving target because there's so many different variables that play in. And that's part of the uh, that is part of the charm of college football, I think. Uh, and the charm was perfectly encapsulated by our friend Bill Hancock. I know you were flying at the time that they did their conference call. You know, I've kept trying to point out like every season is different. The Baylor TCU comparison in 2014 is not a apples to apples with Ohio State, Penn State, where one team has two losses, and and so on and so forth. Um, and Bill Hancock, our good friend, said, 
football seasons are like snowflakes. Everyone is different. Fair enough. Um, so I didn't. I was stuck in airports yesterday for much of Sunday, either in Oklahoma City or then in Chicago through a snowstorm. Uh, so I didn't get. To, I didn't get to watch much of the marathon ESPN shows, you know, with the bowl reveals. But give me outside of the playoff, the bowl matchup you are most intrigued by. This is outside of the playoff or outside of the New Year's Six? Outside of the playoff. For me, it is Dave Aranda and his defense against what we think will be the Heisman Trophy winner, or at least what I think will be the Heisman Trophy winner, Lamar Jackson. Um, I think that will be a compelling to see what he ha- what he can come up with in a month to try to contain that guy. I agree. Uh, that is the To me, that is by far the best of the non-New Year's Six, though I would say Houston showed that you can contain Lamar Jackson, and LSU's probably top to bottom. I think we would agree better players on defense than Louisville, but you also don't know with bowl games. It's always so weird who, who will be up for it? Who won't? I would think Louisville will be more fired up for this game than LSU, but we'll see. But I, I agree. I think that's a great matchup. You know, I always love the Rose bowl. I know it doesn't mean what it used to by any means, especially after everybody's acting like Penn state, you know, has, has been rendered to some, some purgatory for not making the playoff. The interesting thing about Penn state USC is that these are the two schools with that got hit with the heaviest NCAA sanctions by far uh, in recent memory, and it's taken them. It took USC longer to climb out of it, frankly, than Penn State has. I'm, I'm still amazed that Penn State, between the cloud that's hung over that program because of Zary Sandusky and the actual scholarship reductions uh, for two years there, the period where players could transfer freely. James Franklin has them 11 and two and in the Rose Bowl. I think that'll be a fun game. I assume you'll be going. Yeah. Speaking of that, let me ask you this question. If you were to vote for Coach of the Year right now, I mean, Mike McIntyre's got a team that is loaded with seniors in a down Pac-12. James Franklin's got a really, really young team with a first-year starting quarterback, and they just won the toughest conference in college football and won 11 games and beat Ohio State. I think you can make a pretty strong argument I think, for the National Coach of the Year. I know how bad CU's been, but it's not like Penn State has been. Yeah, I, I think you're you're having um, – I don't think you're remembering. Recency bias? Yeah, I don't think you're quite remembering just how bad Colorado was. Five and 40 in the Pac-12. I get that, but the same people who would argue that, look, we're basically giving it for the most improved team, not maybe the best coaching job. They're both great coaching jobs. I, I'm not trying to short sell either one of them. I just think that, you know, I think it's remarkable that James Franklin has Penn State back as quickly as it does. But there is still the element of it's a, still a program with a 100,000-seat stadium and a rabid following. There are some built-in advantages there where you do think Penn State would eventually get back to this level, whether maybe a little quicker than you expect. Yeah, it's just you're in the toughest division in the sport right now. So you would vote Franklin? At this point, I, I'm not saying I definitely would, but I would give it a lot of thought now after seeing what they did the other day. Come on. I want I, I would give it a lot of thought too, but I would ultimately vote McIntyre. I want to, I want you going the other way. Dude, they just won the toughest division in college football. They have hardly any seniors. They beat Ohio State. I'm not denying it was a just it's a phenomenal coaching job. And, and credit to him for going out and getting Joe Moorhead who you would not have thought of remotely as one of the prime candidates to be the new offensive coordinator. Each guy has made terrific coordinator hires. I mean, Jim Levitt has been a stroke of genius for for Mike McIntyre 
And I think Moorhead, especially now his defensive coordinator, Brent Pry was as a Bob shoot disciple. I think they knew they had a, you know, that was a pretty, pretty sure hire, but uh, you know, I thought that was a really good move. Um, you know, again, I'm just looking at the season in total. I, I think, I don't think it's as much a slam dunk as maybe everybody else has said it is now that you look at the season in total. Let's talk Heisman now. You're skipping over the rest of the bowl season that quickly. We got plenty of time to talk about the rest of the bowls. I think we should talk Heisman now. I just want your opinion on one thing real quickly, because I've seen conflicting things on this. Western Michigan, row the boat. They're going to the Cotton Bowl. They get a Wisconsin team that we just saw in this amazing Big Ten title game. And by the way, what was most amazing about that game to me is that Wisconsin had a really good pass defense coming in, and Trace McSorley just lit them up, uh, especially in the second half. But anyway, still a very good team, eighth in the country. When there's a group of five team involved like this, some people think, hey, that's cool. Let's see the, you know, the Cinderella team, see if they can knock off the power conference team. And some people say, why is this a major game? I don't want to watch this. Where do you fall on it? I want to watch it. I am the person who wants to watch every bowl game. And you know why? Because I'm not a fucking fool who knows that college football is going to be gone in a few weeks. And you're going to miss it. <laughs> I don't mean I, this is not a too many bowls conversation. Okay, this well, is it starts to feel like it's drifting. Is Wisconsin Western Michigan an interesting matchup to you? Yes. Yes, it is, because it is a Mac team against a team that just played for the Big Ten title. I want to see that because there's a little bit of a David and Goliath element there. Now, it's not quite the same as if Western Michigan was playing Ohio State or Michigan. But it's still a really good Big Ten team. It's a very physical team. I want to see, I want to see that matchup. No, who I agree with you. People who are comparing it to NIU against Florida State, and I don't think that's fair. NIU, it was kind of strange circumstances that they even got into a BCS Bowl that year. They were not undefeated. And it was clear that that was probably going to be a mismatch. I think this Western Michigan team is really good. And I'm excited to see... Corey Davis and those guys on a big stage, even I would admit I have not seen them play that much, and certainly most of the public hasn't. So I'm excited to see them on that big stage against the Badgers. What other thoughts, Stu? Um, and I'll bounce this off you. So after the game, you know, you have all these ideas running through your head about the questions you can ask. Baker Mayfield's a terrific interview. He always delivers, I feel like. You know, he's very unique. So I'm thinking, you know, I saw Jake Trotter's terrific piece on – on Mike Gundy and his mullet, uh, you know, a little background. The day before, I went out to lunch with our friend George Schroeder at, at Torchy's Tacos and ran into Baker Mayfield and Trevor Knight. And so Trevor, I noticed, had his, you know, big, thick beard going or whatever. He was back visiting his old teammates at OU after the season at A&M. Well, before the game, I ran into Trevor on the field walking around like two hours before kickoff, and he had the Fu Manchu, the same Fu Manchu that, that Baker – uh, got them to grow last year. So he ended up growing it. He told me they added some just for men to darken it, everything. So I'm thinking after the game, Baker has fun with it. Should I ask him, okay, so does this mean Fu Manchu is better than mullet? Um, is that a cheesy question to go to? No, I liked it. Yeah, I ended up scaling back and just said, well, will you keep the Fu Manchu now that it's brought you luck for next season? He was like, no, my lady friend uh, wouldn't approve of it. <laughs> I did see that. It was a good interview. I wonder how many people keep watching for the uh, for the trophy presentation. Also, it seemed like Baker was in rare form after the game, not just in your interview, but in the press conference. It seemed like he was 
all over the map. Were you surprised that he announced he was coming back then? Um, a little bit, you know. I think he had referenced something earlier in the day that I thought about, and I was like, in retrospect, I was like, maybe that's something. But um, you know, it's 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 good news certainly for Oklahoma. I think it's good news for us in in college football because he definitely makes the sport more interesting. I mean, he's going to be one of those guys that people are like. You know, your, your character who's feel like that they've been there eight years, Baker Mayfield will neck by next year will feel like he's been in college for 10 years. Yeah, and, and of course, remember, the Big 12 had to change a rule for him to even be able to have another year of eligibility, and they even voted against it the first time. What about Kyler Murray, though? He's got out of A&M because they weren't playing him enough as a freshman, sets out a year, now he's going to have to sit out another year. I know. Well, Kyler, sorry, you're gonna have to. You'll mainly get two years as the player. I know they like him because I'd asked Lincoln Riley this week about him and and everything. But the, I think the question for OU is going to be. I, my hunch is they'll probably lose both running backs. So I guess it'll be Abdul Adams, who's a freshman, who's you know played a little bit, who'd probably be the guy. But that's losing a lot, especially when you consider they're going to lose D.D. Westbrook too, who's a senior. Okay, so OU did not make the playoff. And Bob Stoops seemed to be pretty much okay with that. He didn't put up a, much of a stink. Um, let's talk for a minute about the teams that did. We talked about the actual selections earlier, but we didn't really talk about the actual playoff. I mean, I'm excited and looking ahead to these games. Let's start with Ohio State Clemson. And I know we'll have lots of time over the next few weeks to really go you know deep on this, but what's the most intriguing storyline to you about that game? You know, I think it is... Uh, Greg Schiano's defense, which has been very good, especially at making big plays against a very explosive offense with with Deshaun Watson. I mean, to me, that's that's what I want to see more than anything. You? It's interesting because that's a good storyline. But you know what else? Teams have had a lot of success, including Virginia Tech the other day, uh, throwing the ball downfield on these guys on Clemson. I don't know what it is about this year's Clemson defense. They do. They have great moments and they give up big plays, but that has not been Ohio State's strength to this point downfield passing the receivers haven't been great you know it's been more about the running game so i'm interested to see with a month's preparation if ohio state can find a way to exploit that and also just from a selfish media standpoint it's just it's always great whenever you have Dabo swinney doing multiple press conferences leading up to a game yes um you know what they've been there and i do feel like handicap this game right now just off top of your head who are you picking are you not ready to go there yet I'm not ready to go there yet. I think that that one's a much tougher call than the other one where I am. Why, you have a lean? Yeah, I got a lean. I, I, look, I'm the, I'm the same person who's not getting off the, the uh, Clemson bandwagon. So I picked them at the start of the year. I'm going to ride it out. I've had a hard time getting on the Clemson bandwagon. So that should indicate where I'm leaning on that one. With Alabama-Washington, it's a weird situation where like I, we said earlier, I'm absolutely okay with Washington getting in the playoff. I have a really hard time seeing how Washington could beat Alabama, not just because Alabama is Alabama, but I just, after seeing Jake Browning really struggle against really the two best defenses he's faced in, in USC and Colorado, what hope does he have against that Alabama defensive front? It's a good question. You know, look, I mean, what you're saying is valid. I don't know. Chris Peterson with a month makes things a little more interesting to me. But yeah, I mean, there's a reason why it's not a shock that Alabama is a two touchdown favorite. That to me, either way, is one of the most interesting things about this playoff field. Look at who the coaches are, right? It's not Saban obviously gets all the love and Urban Meyer as well. But Dabo Sweeney has done just absolutely remarkable things at Clemson. I think anybody would put him on a short list 
of the best coaches in the country. And now you've got Chris Peterson, who, who by the way, has has won on this stage before in a big BCS games um, with a much less talented roster. But obviously, and even he said this, by the way, Chris Peterson's a funnier guy than people realize. You know, he doesn't show that very often. He was funny in the uh, press conference right after the game the other night. He was funny on TV when they asked him about the, the fans holding up signs. We want Alabama signs. And he said, well, I didn't put up that sign. Be careful what you wish for. And then on the conference call that the Peach Bowl had, um, he wasn't getting any questions. Saban was getting all the questions. So Saban took one for the team and said, I just want to take a moment to uh, congratulate Washington and Chris Peterson on all the great successful season they had. And Peterson said, yeah, you know, I'd like to do the same, but uh, something like I was a lot more excited about your team until we found out we were playing them. So he's he's in good spirits about this. He'll have some trick plays ready to go. Hopefully they go better than uh, Florida's trick plays in the uh, SEC championship game, which just absolutely blew up in their face. Yeah, look, I think our uh, I think some of our colleagues maybe have, have not spent enough time around him in the offseason to figure that out. Like he, I, I've always thought he's one of the more engaging and insightful guys to talk to. And a lot of that's been, you know, you see him maybe not in the game week or so, and you get to see a different side of him. And, and I'm, I'm glad people kind of open their eyes to it a little bit. You have gained his trust and you've cracked that inner circle, but he doesn't let a lot of people come and talk to him one-on-one and see that, that part of him. So, all right, you're in New York, and one of the reasons you go to New York is that's where all the coaching scuttlebutt happens. What's the latest? Uh, we just right before we came on, Purdue hired Jeff Brom, and I, I think that's a home run hire for Purdue. I mean, this guy was sought after by Baylor, Purdue. He probably would have been sought after by Cincinnati if they had started their coaching search earlier. Purdue gets him, and I'm making the parallel. I'm making the parallel to Joe Tiller coming in in '97 with the spread offense that the Big Ten had never seen. The offense he's been running at Western Kentucky, which obviously comes from his Petrino influence, has been unbelievable. Uh, you saw it in the uh, cha- conference USA championship game the other day. Yeah, look, I, I think he is, I agree with you, he is a home run hire for them. Uh, I think that Purdue is very fortunate that he ended up there. He could have maybe ended up at Cincinnati. They have an opening now that Tommy Tuberville's out. I mean, look, he could have ended up just about anywhere. If I'm Baylor, I would have been like, he would have, he's not a big Texas guy in terms of he doesn't have those kind of roots, but I think he's one of those rare guys who could have had success anywhere and I could see him almost anywhere and Purdue's lucky I think the Big Ten got a lot better today uh so going forward a little bit some of these hires could happen you know know, maybe even before this time this one goes up uh I think Oregon's an interesting situation uh we'll see I mean we I had reported on Saturday morning on our Fox pregame show that things really heated up on Friday uh Brian Harson and Willie Taggart both had interviewed in Dallas I think Willie uh, Willie Taggart, who's ten and two at USF, is a real candidate in there. I mean, I think he's he's gained some traction. Um, you know, I, I, from what I've been told, Dan Mullen from Mississippi State, there's interest in him from Oregon, and uh, I, I would expect Oregon will have its head coach uh, by Tuesday. Wow, um, and I'm interested to see what happens because. Okay, so P.J. Fleck had been the presumed frontrunner for Purdue for a long time. Obviously, he's not going to Purdue. Now, it doesn't seem like he's going to Oregon. And I, I just never would have guessed that there was a possibility he would end up staying at Western Michigan. Or does this mean that he's in play for Cincinnati? I mean, I guess that's possible. I think that 
what I was told about 10 days ago was that don't rule out the chance that he does something like Tom Herman did last year when he passed on South Carolina and a few other opportunities. He got more money that Western Michigan would bump him up, keep him on for another year, and then see what his options are next year. But uh, what's interesting is, you know, you know, you alluded to Cincinnati, where obviously Jeff Braum was a name there. To me, there's some interesting names in there, but the most interesting is Charlie Strong, the former Texas coach who had a lot of success at Louisville. Uh, you think that's a good fit? Yeah, I've been pushing that since before he was fired at Texas. I thought that would be the absolute natural landing spot for him. Obviously, a lot of familiarity there. Cincinnati and Louisville were in the same conference at the time. Uh, they're not too far apart. I'm sure it's a lot of recruiting overlap. Uh, and then Cincinnati has gone through, you know, first they had the run of coaches who used it as a springboard. And those guys were very successful. D'Antonio, Brian Kelly, Butch Jones. It's Hoverville. They thought, oh, you know, this will be uh, this will be the opposite. We'll get a guy who's more established, who's probably on his last stop in his career and has coached in the biggest conferences. This will be great. And it started out great. And then it just kind of flamed out. And there was just no energy in that program. Charlie Strong's the right middleman to me where he's, no, he's not an up-and-comer by any means, but he has that, he has coached at the highest level and he's still relatively young. Uh, I think you could see him having success there and staying there for a long time. Yeah, you know what would be interesting here, and I'm just thinking out loud, is if Willie Taggart did get the Oregon job, USF would come open. To me, that would be a slam dunk if you're USF to bring Charlie Strong back to Florida. Now, this kind of depends on what happens with Houston, but I always thought USF would be the slam dunk spot for Lane Kiffin. Um, okay, so you put on your AD hat for a second. If I'm saying you could be, and I think USF to me is a much more ideal spot for Lane Kiffin than Houston. I mean, I've heard from different people that Lane Kiffin was expected to interview for the Houston job on Monday. Uh, the part that, you know, multiple people have pointed out to me is how will the Texas high school coaches, which is more important than any other like group of coaches for almost any other job than it is when you're a Texas, you know, coaching at a Texas college. How would they feel about Lane Kiffin? Lane Kiffin has, has a lot of ties into the Tampa area and into Florida, not so much on the, te- on the Texas side. Uh, if you're, but going back to, let's say, the hypothetical on USF, if you're the USF AD, who would you hire, Charlie Strong or Lane Kiffin? I love Charlie Strong, but I'd hire Lane Kiffin. Uh, somebody's going to, and I know he's been a bit of a train wreck as a head coach in the past. But this is the place for him to to do it, where it's low scrutiny. He won't be, you know, have opportunities, frankly, to pop off in the press very often. And like you said, I mean, to me, it's much more important to be able to recruit Florida than Texas if you're at USF, and and he can do it. So um, I think if you're placing the pieces, it would be great if it worked out where he's at USF and uh, strong to Cincinnati. But some dominoes have to fall into place. And by the way, one of those is that Houston would not hire Lane Kiffin. He's definitely interviewed with them, correct? Uh, He's supposed to interview, I believe, on Monday. That's what I was told. Gotcha. So he's in the mix there. Is Les Miles still in the mix there? Les Miles, I I am told, is still in the mix there. The two internal candidates. I've heard Todd Orlando, the defensive coordinator, who's the interim, has impressed people with how he's kind of uh, shown bigger picture ideas there now since he's become the interim. Uh, I could see Houston looking at Lincoln Riley from Oklahoma. Lincoln Riley has turned down other head coaching jobs, 
but I don't know if he would be able to turn down Houston. I'm not sure of that. Maybe he would. I don't know, but I think he's definitely going to be one of those guys who's going to get an opportunity probably sooner than later somewhere that he would maybe be too good to refuse. Yeah, but if you're Houston, would you worry that he pulls the Tom Herman and leaves after two years? I think that, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up. I think that's a factor for every guy we've mentioned with the exception of Les Miles. Now, look, from what I've been told, Houston is going to put in a lot of strict contract language to try to prevent that. But, you know, short of Les Miles, I don't think there's any guarantee. You think Lane Kiffin wants to retire at at Houston? (laughs) No, of course not. So that is part of, unfortunately, the reality of being in a group of five conference. I know that the Houston, Houston did everything it could to spend the money to up Tom Herman. And it was just never, there was never a chance they were going to keep him. So unfortunately that's the reality. Everybody wants to be in the power five. Everybody wants to have a shot at the national championship, which is very, very hard to do there. So, uh, but I guess there's a difference between, you know, you could get a guy. I just think if it's a guy like Lincoln Riley, who's kind of just still very young and still say that he's not going to be there very long. I mean, Les Miles, he's not going to go anywhere. You know, he, he'd have a nice run there for a while. I don't know. I don't know what the right answer to that is. Do you take the up-and-comer who, if he has success, you, you're, you're going to lose him after a couple of years? I don't know. I'll tell you a good example, though, just because I know it from my uh, background. You know, obviously, I grew up a big Xavier basketball fan in Cincinnati, and now they're in a major conference. But back when I first started following them, they were in the, the old MCC and eventually the A-10, and they have that's what they've done, right? They get a Sean Miller, and then he does well, and he goes to Arizona, and they replace him with Chris Mack. And, you know, every year Chris Mack gets room for a job somewhere else. So I do think to sustain a Houston or a Boise State at this point, you're just going to have to deal with the reality that anybody who's good is going to leave, and you just got to be ready and have the next guy uh, ready, lined up, ready to go to replace him. Agreed. Um, anything else you are curious about coaching-wise? Not that I can think of. Uh, So USC Penn State gets announced as the Rose Bowl. And I can't think USC Penn State Rose Bowl without thinking the 2008 game or 2008 season, 2009 game. And when I think of that game, I don't think of the game itself. I think of what happened to the media the night before the game. And then you chimed in about that. So I chimed in on that on Twitter. And then you brought up another infamous media, everybody getting sick. So... (laughs) Somebody on Twitter asked us to tell the stories, so we will. Let's start with USC Penn State. Okay, so I was not there for USC Penn State, so you take the lead on it. All right, I'll tell that one. So the night before the game, uh, they have a media party at the ESPN Zone in LA Live. And they play the game. There's food. You play games. Da-da-da-da. You have fun. The next morning, I get up. I go get on the media shuttle at like 8.30 a.m. that's going to the game. And I noticed that people are just really dragging. And, and not just because, you know, it was New Year's Eve. Just like some people are look, like, look really bad. And then I hear a couple Penn State media or photographers, I'm not sure, talking to each other about how they've been throwing up all night. And then this guy's not going to be able to go. And that guy's not going to be able to go. Anyway, massive food poisoning from that ESPN Zone party. A lot of people either didn't make it to the game or were really hurting at the game. And it just be, kind of became the infamous story of that game. I got to admit, uh, my friend Dan Weike, who now covers the Clippers for the Orange County Register, was covering USC at the time and was talking about it. It was, I, let's call it a double barrel attack that he was getting from this from this ill-fated ESPN <laughs> zone trip. Um, <laughs> He's one of the ones that didn't make it. 
somehow I avoided it. Yeah. Um, the other story that I love, like I like these stories because I wasn't part of it. Was because uh, you're not because you weren't affected by them. Yeah. So one year, I want to say it was like maybe 2005. The, the national title game was it would have been 2005, I guess, but it was uh, about a decade ago. The national title game was down in South. It was Florida. the o- Oklahoma. USC. It was the Oklahoma. Yeah. So it would have been a decade ag- or t- 11 years ago. Yeah. So it's down in South Florida in Fort Lauderdale, and there's signups that the people who run the Orange Bowl uh, are having for anybody to go on this like booze cruise or whatever it is around Fort Lauderdale. Fortunately, like a year earlier, I had gone on one of those with my now wife, and it was pretty miserable experience. I just remember like everybody on the on the thing smoked, and I just like I couldn't wait to get off it. Uh, it was bad air. It was not fun. I'm like, I don't want any part of that. I'm not doing that. I'll just go to some bar. I don't, I don't care. And then I started getting texts from the people on it. Uh, and it was literally like, it was like the Titanic of sports writers. You were on that trip, right? <laughs> oh God. Yeah. It was, it was one of these, if I had known what I was getting into, it was one of these like really cheap, basically gambling cruises. They take you off for four hours and they want you to gamble the whole time. And I remember as I was getting on, uh, Hoops Weiss, Mark Blouch, and they were there with their wives. They were coming off. We hadn't left yet, and they were getting off the boat. I was like, I wonder what that's about. So you start out in the intercoastal waterway. Once it got out of the intercoastal waterway into the ocean, you just feel a bump and then another bump. It was, you remember the, the unfortunate, the tragedy of the tsunami in 2004 that hit like Thailand and and the Indian Ocean, basically. Somehow the ripple effect of that made it all the way to South Florida, and we got to feel it. And it was just four hours of everybody getting uh, motion sickness, people throwing up over the side of the boat. Um, I remember, um, I, I won't out him. He doesn't deserve to be outed for this, but a guy who worked with the Big 12 who was there with a girl who he had just started dating, Got sick right at the beginning. It was sick the whole time. And, and it was so inhumane. They wouldn't turn the boat around. Everybody's sick. And they just wouldn't. They wanted. They needed their four hours of people gambling. They would not turn the boat around. So what happened was there was this like lounge, you know, nightclub lounge area in the middle that had just became like a triage. People were just passed out, pale faced. Um, all I know is people just kept just keep looking at the horizon. Just keep looking at the horizon. Um, it was awful. I... Did not throw up on the boat, but when I got home, you know how you sometimes you get off a boat and you feel like you're still moving? Uh, this was a very extreme version of that. So, yeah, I, I got sick when I got back to the room. And I and then we had to be at a press conference at like 8 in the morning the next day. I remember I was there. I have, for some reason, remember Gene Wojcikowski was sitting there. And we were telling you about this, and you were just laughing hysterically. Like, I'm telling you, like, how miserable I feel, and everybody's, and you, and every time I tell more, I tell you a story. Was Gene with you on the- No, he, you and him were looking, like, nice and uh, sharp and, and well-rested, and the rest of us are like, it was so miserable, I couldn't stop throwing up. It was all, and you were just laughing. You were getting such a kick out of it. Yeah, I'm not the most mature person in the world, so I'll, I'll own that. Um, so anyway. Well, that was a lot, long time ago when we were much younger, and uh, I guess that also gives a little window into what we do at the bowl games. We do work, but, you know, it's fun, too. It's a reward for the coaches, the players, and the media. Though I will say nobody that I can think of has tried to do a media cruise ever since that infamous night. That's a good thing.
All right. Uh, and it was becoming a podcast tradition. Bruce has switched locales for the last part of this podcast. He had to uh, head to wherever he's heading in New York. So we've got him on the phone now. And uh, what's left to talk about? Let's get into Heisman, Stu. Okay, so, you know, I've already voted. It's Monday. I assume you're about to vote. And Believe it or not, seconds before that we came on, I finally submitted my ballot with three and a half hours to spare. There you go. Well, what I did was, since we've been doing these top fives all year, I included my little top five on Sunday. and But I said I listed them in alphabetical order. Here's basically the guys I'm picking from. Now, I'm not going to get into who I put one, two, or three. We can't. We're not allowed to disclose your Heisman ballot. Yes. Which is a stupid rule, by the way, but that's a conversation for another time. That led to a uh, some Florida State fans. And there's a site called Fansided. Fansided is, is a partner of ours of sorts, and the one of the people who runs the FSU side of it, um, you know, retweeted somebody to me that said Deontay Foreman has not faced any top forty defenses, and as I pointed out, that's not true. They played K State, which is twelfth in the country in rushing defense. But if you're going to say, did Dalvin Cook and Florida State face much tougher defenses than Texas and Deontay Foreman? Yes, I would agree, but. The part I wanted to stop there with him was like, I don't want to get into this like a back and forth where now all of a sudden I'm I'm giving you specific reasons why I would choose Deontay Foreman per se over another player or somebody else over Dalvin Cook or vice versa. Because then what you end up doing is you end up kind of picking apart those players. And the reality is they're all terrific players. And, you know, it's just not, a, I don't think it's a good look to kind of go do that. And I felt bad that you know, about a month or so ago, I think I did that with you on the podcast about why I didn't have Denel Pumphrey in my top five. And, you know, it's just not, I just don't think it's good to do that. And that doesn't mean, you know, that, uh, you know, that we don't factor those things in on our own ballots. But I think at the end of the day, you know, I, I, I just don't think you need to be like running guys down in the process of trying to prove your point. You agree with me on that? Yeah, it's tough. You know, I got it. Florida State fans are particularly defensive about Dalvin Cook. I got into a similar thing a few weeks ago. And it's like, there's not this huge separation where it's like, here are my top five and everybody else sucks. You know, these are really good players, but you have to narrow it down to five. And now for the actual ballot, you have to narrow it down to three. Um, I will say that while there's a lot of good players out there, collectively, this is the most underwhelming field I can remember. Uh, Starting with the fact that the guy who's probably going to win it ended his season on a two-game losing streak. Uh, and then when you look at the various other people that we're going to talk about here in a second, they're all good players, but you can, you can poke holes, you can find flaws as well, uh, with just about anybody. So I saw your list of guys you were still considering as, or as of that morning. Let's see. Baker Mayfield was one, as I recall. It was Lamar, Baker Mayfield, Deontay Foreman, uh, Deshaun Watson, who I moved back up there. Now, look, Deshaun Watson, the, the number for me that gives me pause is the number of interceptions. And when you look at his passing stats, they're relatively, they're relatively similar to what he had last year when I thought he was a, um, had a stronger candidacy. Now, the thing that's different is he's run for about half as many yards as he did last year. But, I, again, I still think he's one of the best players in the country. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a, there's a, a case to be made for him. Uh, yeah, I'm with you 100%. That, so. I, his stats have actually gotten better and better as a whole to the point where they're not comparable to last year except for the rushing. And then, yeah, the 15 interceptions uh, really stand out. If you look at his game by game, uh, there's very few games where he didn't throw an interception. Uh, so there's that. 
about Deshaun. Let me ask you, you were at Bedlam. How did you pick Mayfield's on your list and D.D. Westbrook is not? How do you decide which of those two guys is the prime Oklahoma candidate? Because I'm struggling with that myself. I had D.D. as my Oklahoma guy for the past month, and my rationale was he was hurt, and he was slowed by hamstring for about the first three weeks of the season. He got healthy. Oklahoma took off. Baker took off. What changed for me at the last minute was Baker was close, and then D.D. got knocked out of the game after you know already having a 100-yard first half, got knocked out in the second quarter of our game. And Baker was, was fantastic in really bad conditions. It was windy. It was, it was a downpour the whole day. And, you know, when I watched the game, and I'm on the sideline for this, Mason Rudolph's a really good quarterback. and He struggled in the conditions. And if you look back, I mean, the pro football focus people pointed this out. And in, in, uh, he was almost perfect. In, you know, they, I think he was 13 of 19, but there were four drop passes and another ball that wasn't, I guess, was knocked away. And when you look at what uh, he did under pressure, he was four for five for 133 yards and three touchdowns. I mean, he's he's terrific. Yeah, I'll tell you what snuck up on me. And by the way, it's a shame that D.D. Westbrook got hurt in that game because he got off such a hot start. It looked like he might have just a you know an absolutely fantastic game. Case closed. Instead, they ended up riding Samaj Piran quite a bit. I did not. I would not have guessed Baker Mayfield uh, ends the regular season leading the country in passive passer rating. And not only that. It's 197.75, the record Russell Wilson set in 2011. Baker Mayfield is at 197.75. That is ahead of Russell Wilson's record that he set in 2011, 191.78. So depending on how he does in the bowl game, he could end up breaking the single-season passer rating record. My only reservation with Baker Mayfield is that's a lot of bad Big 12 defenses he faced, and the best team he faced all year was Ohio State. He was not great in that game but there's no question he's had a good season um he merited consideration for my ballot that i submitted just a little while ago hey real quick speaking of bedlam you were there you were the sideline reporter and i gotta say i was completely caught off guard watching the end of the game that you ended up being the one to give the trophy presentation to give the trophy to oklahoma yeah, it was pretty crazy when they told me that that was going to happen on uh, Friday afternoon at our production meeting where they had said, hey, you know what? If Oklahoma wins, you're gonna, your mic's going to go live. You're going to be speaking to the whole crowd. It's 100,000 people. You know, this is what you need to do. Just introduce yourself, say who you work for, and then also basically congratulate the Oklahoma 2016 champs, give it a second to lay out so the crowd can pick up and then bring Bob Bowles in. And, and no matter what you do, most importantly, do not let go of the mic. You got to hold the mic. You got to keep it. Cause I guess there's been some settings where some uh, hosts have let the mic go and it's kind of, the, I guess it's been bad TV. So there was that. And that was in addition to, doing my two on-field interviews right after the game. So what threw it a little bit of a curveball was, you know, they had given out a Bedlam trophy as well. And so, you know, myself and my producer and my camera guy are trying to get into the scrum. You're surrounded by all these Oklahoma players. They don't know what you're supposed to be doing or whatever. They're just doing their thing and celebrating the moment. So it it was definitely chaotic. But, uh, my biggest fear was I was going to introduce the 2017 Oklahoma, you know, Sooners as the big 12 champs or the, you know, accidentally have some kind of misspeak where I call them Oklahoma state or something, just because you hear yourself going through the stadium. It's just kind of a big deal. 
And I'll be honest, I'm, there's nothing I've ever done that could prepare me for that. I mean, it's one thing to be on TV and doing it. It's another thing to hear your voice in a big stadium. And so it was cool, and I'm glad it went off without incident. And I appreciate, uh, I appreciate, you know, the people who like kind of looked out for me on that because I don't think they realized that inside I was like, whoa, this is a big deal. Well, yeah, I mean, trophy ceremonies can go haywire. There's no question about that on live TV. So uh, I'm glad it worked out. Chris and I were watching it in the avocado room. And I remember one of us said, even though you're on TV and a million people might be watching, I would assume the 90,000 people you're you're talking to directly in the stadium, that's much more nerve-wracking. It would be for me, at least, once you hear your voice going through that stadium. Uh, I know you got to go, so let's just tell people that we will be back later in the week and we'll be answering emails. So send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And as always, subscribe to The Audible on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We'll see you next time. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.